Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is the last in a series of essays called Our Women Amazed Us for the Season of Lent. The title is They Have Taken Away My Lord and I Do Not Know Where They Have Laid Him. It's a guest essay by Catherine Green McCrate. Catherine is an Episcopal priest in New Haven, Connecticut, and author of the book, Darkness is My Only Companion, A Christian Response to Mental Illness, 2006. In another book, Feminist Reconstructions of Christian Doctrine, Narrative Analysis and Appraisal, from the year 2000. Catherine Green McCrate earned her Ph.D. at Yale. Her essay is based on the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 4, 2010, Easter Sunday. Back in ancient times, when I was a seminarian, my New Testament interpretation professor, who was a thoroughgoing historical critic, had become suspicious that the younger generation of his guild was engaged in a so-called new thing. Isaiah 65 proclaims that God is doing a new thing with and for Israel, a promise of hope. But my professor feared that the New Testament guild's so-called new thing bore precious little hope and bore very little relationship with what he called the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I will never forget his lecture Easter Monday, which coincided with his treatment of the newer methods and their results. He whispered to us, and I should say that man could whisper with such a force that all 150 of us in the auditorium could hear him clearly. In the words of the weeping Mary Magdalene from the Gospel for this week in John 20, he made a blunt assessment. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. John 20:13 Why does Mary say this especially on that first Easter morning Isn't she supposed to be full of hope She notices that the stone has been rolled away from the tomb and yet she weeps Mary Magdalene was expecting Jesus's body to be in that tomb They have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. We think of Easter as a joyful time as we read of the women finding the tomb empty. All of the men and women who had known and loved and followed and learned from Jesus should be, or so we think, joyful on that day of resurrection. After all, Jesus had told them at least three times during his earthly ministry that he would be killed by the religious and secular rulers in Jerusalem. Why didn't his followers get this? Why does Mary bottom out with sorrow when she finds the tomb empty? They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Since Mary had fully expected to find the Lord's dead body in the tomb, she was devastated to find the tomb empty instead. She was not expecting the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It had not occurred to her that Jesus would have risen from the dead, despite his sayings during his earthly life about his impending murder 
and subsequent resurrection. And so those who are among what Schleiermacher called the cultured despisers of Christianity stop there at the empty tomb. For these despisers, the empty tomb proves nothing, declares nothing, promises nothing. And the conclusions of these despisers is that Jesus' life was simply, in the words of Thomas Hobbes, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. In their view, Jesus' messiahship was a failure. His teachings were void of any truth. His death was just like all the others. In the words of Ecclesiastes 1, 2, and 14, vanity of vanity, striving after wind. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary thinks that something precious has been lost to her, namely her Lord's life and presence. Notice, though, that she runs to the tomb before Easter Sunday actually begins. As Gentiles, most of us may be a bit confused here. The description in the text goes thus, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. For Jews, and of course Jesus and all of his first followers were Jewish, the day is reckoned from evening to morning and not from morning to evening as in the Gentile world. And so, for example, Genesis describes the days of creation in this way, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And thus it is from Genesis chapter 1, 5, and throughout the rest of the chapter. Since it was still dark when Mary rushed to the tomb, it was not yet morning, not yet Sunday, not yet the first day of the week, not yet the day of resurrection. We must remember how significant is the contrast between darkness and light in Scripture. We notice this right from the beginning pages of both the Old Testament and the New as well. The first act of creation on the very first day is light itself. And God said, let there be light, and behold, there was light. This light conquers the dark in John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Or, in the way that the King James Version put it, comprehendeth it not. So Mary Magdalene shows up at the empty tomb in the dark of the Sabbath, before the first rays of dawn on the day of resurrection. And at finding the stone rolled away from the tomb and Jesus' body missing, her natural reaction is to weep in that dark before the dawn. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. John 20 verse 9. Mary's statement, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him, is for her one of horror, loss, in confusion. But count it all joy, brothers and sisters, for Mary and for Peter and John and for the rest of the disciples and for later Christians, including us today, the empty tomb is the cause of our great rejoicing. Because the body of the Lord has not been stolen, 
They have not taken away the body of our Lord. He is present with us, Emmanuel, and behold, he is even present with us to the end of the ages. What do our gospel texts tell us happened to the body? Nothing. The canonical gospels explain nothing, not biologically, not visually, not audibly. The non-canonical gospel of Peter portrays a huge, bouncing, speaking cross emerging from the tomb. But our canonical gospels are more to the point. This resurrection is not to be explained scientifically or chemically. Jesus' body has of its own simply vanished. Only later does Jesus appear, and only later does he express his affection and tenderness and hunger, and even, yes, he permits Thomas to probe his wounds. The resurrection resurrected Jesus is not a ghost. He remains a man and yet son of God, recognizable even to his friends, but not immediately so. The wounds of his murder by which we ourselves are healed remain in and on his body even after his resurrection. He's the same, but different. Jesus' resurrection says more than that a dead man lives again. Yes, Jesus' resurrection is categorically different from his raising of Lazarus, who was destined to die even after Jesus' great signs in raising him up from death. Resurrection is more than dead men walking. It points to the inbreaking of God's rule over all that alienates itself from him. And so all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus and thus into his death know that we will share in his resurrection. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 4. And so the resurrected Jesus responds to our doubts about his presence among us every day of our lives with this question from Luke chapter 24, verse 5. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. A guest essay by Catherine Green McCrae from New Haven, Connecticut. For books this week, I review Michael Benson, Far Out, A Space-Time Chronicle, New York, Abrams, 2009, 328 pages. I don't ever recall enjoying a book more that I understood less. The text and astrophotographic images of the cosmos compiled by Michael Benson make for sacred and scientific meditation on time and space, the nature and history of the cosmos. If there is one volume on which you'd like to splurge, this exquisite coffee table book makes a fine candidate. Benson has organized his book beginning with the earliest chapters considering our contemporaneous universe, 
like the star Antares, which is 700 times the size of our sun. And then the book concludes with the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, a small slice of space about 13 billion years old. The mysteries and majesty pile up in page after page of superlatives. Stars that are four million times the brightness of our sun. An impending collision between our Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy 2.5 billion years from now. But don't worry, it's possible that this mashup could occur without effect, due in part to all the dark matter out there. Dark matter, as you might know, comprises about 96% of the universe. In Benson's words, it's a putative something about which we know almost nothing. Still, with 100 billion galaxies out there, cosmic crashes are not that unusual. In our microscopic pinprick that we call Earth, it didn't even exist a measly 4.5 billion years ago. It's impossible to look at these pictures and read Benson's text without considering the existential implications of our own consciousness that deciphered the cosmos. Somehow and in some way our solar system formed. Benson writes, what became our world ultimately bore creatures capable of receiving and interpreting that 13 billion year old light that twinkled back to us on Earth. Scientific explanations for the process by which those atoms came together are as mysterious, finally, as faith-based ones. Benson's prose then stumbles and bumbles for affirmation with accuracy. He writes, through a profoundly mysterious alchemy, via the agency of an as yet ineffable mechanism, a certain further something then transpired. That further something was the appearance of carbon-based life, and eventually humanity itself, which, like all the cosmos, originated from materials that once wafted in clouds between the stars. And stay tuned, by the way, the James Webb Space Telescope, successor to the Hubble, is due for launch in the year 2014. The author is Michael Benson. The title of this gorgeous coffee table book, Far Out, A Space-Time Chronicle. For film this week, I review A Single Man from the year 2009. George Falconer, played by Colin Firth, is a single man, and doubly so. First, he's a gay professor in Los Angeles in the early 60s. And so the film takes us back to all the indignities of living in the closet, or, as one character puts it, living as quote-unquote invisible people. Even a float even a very close friend describes George's partner as a quote-unquote substitute for marriage, even though George's relationship lasted twice as long as hers. George is also single because he lost his partner of 16 years in a car accident. He's deeply mired in human grief, 
And if he's melodramatic, he says, it's because my heart has been broken. His life proceeds in slow motion. The friendly overtours of neighbors fall on deaf ears. And even the radio news of the Cuban Missile Crisis barely registers with him. Flashbacks haunt him with memories of better days with his partner. When he leaves for work, he packs a pistol in his suitcase. And what happens with that pistol and why at the end of the movie was very unsatisfying to me. The two reasons for George's singleness run as parallel rather than integrated stories. Colin Firth received an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor for his portrayal of Falconer. The title of the, fil the, title of the film, A Single Man, from the year 2009. And finally, for Easter Sunday, we've posted a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Hopkins was an English poet educated at Oxford. He lived from 1844 to 1889. The title of Hopkins' poem is called Easter Communion. Pure fasted faces draw unto this feast. God comes all sweetness to your Lenten lips. You striped in secret with breathtaking whips. Those crooked, rough-scored checkers may be pierced. To crosses meant for Jesus's, you whom the East, with draught of thin and pursuant cold so nips, breathe Easter now, you surge fellowships, you vigil keepers with low flames decreased. God shall o'erbrim the measures you have spent with oil of gladness for sackcloth and frieze, and the ever-fretting shirt of punishment, give murray-threaded golden folds of ease. Your scarce-sheathed bones are weary of being bent. Lo, God shall strengthen all the feeble knees. Easter Communion by Gerard Manley Hopkins Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 4th, 2010, Christ has risen. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.